Hello and welcome to Navara Live. I'm Moy Lady McLean and tonight I'm joined by Ash Saka. Ash, hello. How you doing? It's nice to see you on Navara Live and not just on our brand new podcast, if I speak. <laughs> you are the master of plugging. Yes, Ash and I have a new podcast called If I Speak. And if you go to our socials or Spotify or Apple Podcasts and search for If I Speak, you'll be able to listen to the first episode out now but we're doing Navarra live tonight so coming up later we will be bringing you the latest updates from the situation in Gaza we'll also be scrutinizing Labour's defense over Hoylegate and see if it stacks up I hate adding gate as a suffix to stuff so please please know that's attributed to my producer James Fox and we will also be exploring the moral panic about Palestinian protesters stay tuned for all of that first story Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker of the House of Commons, has today issued a grovelling apology for his decision yesterday to put forward a Labour amendment over an SNP one. Here's what Hoyle said. I made a judgment call that didn't end up in the position where I expected it to. I regret it. I apologise to the SNP. Just just bear with me for I apologise and I apologise to the House. I made a mistake. We do make mistakes, iron up to mine. Now that is not all Hoyle said, but we will get into that more later. First, I want to break down exactly what led to that initial show of contrition, because a quick refresher. The Speaker of the House of Commons is the person who maintains order within the Commons. They are strictly non-partisan, and a Speaker has to renounce their affiliation to their former political party. Lindsay Hoyle, of course, belonged to the Labour Party before he was elected Speaker in 2019. Now, Wednesday was an SNP opposition day. These are days when opposition parties can put forward debates and motions to be discussed and voted upon. And this gives an opportunity to the parties that are not in government to put certain issues on the parliamentary agenda and record. So they are important. The results aren't legally binding, but they are supposed to represent the, quote, will of parliament. So if the government isn't addressing something, say, like the issue of a ceasefire in Gaza, opposition days enable other parties to drag them, kicking and screaming, into the Commons to discuss just that. And there are 20 opposition days each parliamentary session. 17 of those are allocated to Labour as the biggest alternative party, but only three of those days are allocated to the SNP. Yesterday was one of those three days. So what happened? The SNP used their opposition day to put forward a motion calling for an immediate ceasefire in Israel's war on Gaza. And both Labour and the government tabled amendments which weakened that original SNP motion significantly. And out of these two amendments, only one would normally be picked, usually the government's. But instead, this is what happened on Wednesday afternoon. We now come to the SNP motion on Gaza. I understand that the second motion on the order paper will not be moved today. This is a highly sensitive subject on which feelings are running high in the House, in the nation and throughout the world. I think it's important on this occasion that the House is able to consider the widest possible range of options. I have therefore decided to select the amendments both in the name of the Prime Minister and in the name of the Leader of the Opposition. So firstly, Hoyle selected both 
amendments. And this is the first time this has happened in about 25 years on an opposition day. He was actually warned against doing this by his own clerks, but we'll get on to why. But Hoyle was not finished there. Because the operation of standing order number 31 will prevent another amendment from being moved after the government has moved its amendment. I will exceptionally call the opposition front bench spokesperson to move their amendment at the beginning of the debate. Once, once the SNP spokesperson have moved their motion, at the end of the debate, the House will have an opportunity to take a decision on the official opposition amendment. If that is agreed, if that is agreed to, there's a final question on the main motion as amended. If the official opposition amendment is not agreed to, I will call the Minister to move the Government amendment formally. That will engage the... Order! I'm going to finish... That will engage the provisions of standing order number 31. So the next vote will be on the original words in the SNP motion. If that is not agreed to, shh, then the House will have the opportunity to vote on the government amendment. Proceeding this way will allow a vote to take place potentially on all proposals from each of the three main parties. What Lindsay Hoyle did there was move the Labour amendment to be first in the voting order. Now, the Tories were so incensed by this choice that they withdrew their amendment and abstained from further voting. That meant the Labour amendment would automatically pass, essentially wiping out the SNP motion, which there was then no vote on anyway. Fury absolutely erupted at this decision and the implications and hours of debate ensued. Here's SNP Westminster leader Stephen Flynn summing up the situation. If I have listened correctly to what has just been said, on SNP opposition day, <coughs> should the Labour Party's motion be carried, then the SNP's vote will not be held. <laughs> Secondly, if I, have, if I have read the clerk's letter to all members correctly, which was sent to the, to the speaker, this was a consequence that he was warned of. So can you please advise me, where on earth is the Speaker of the House of Commons? How, how do we bring him to that seat to explain how do we bring him to this house now to explain to the Scottish National Party why our views and our votes in this house are irrelevant to him? Rightly furious there, because when Stephen Flynn was speaking, Lindsay Hoyle wasn't actually there at that point. He'd announced what he was going to do, and then he left and his deputy speaker was there. And this actually led to a scene where at one point, both SNP and Tory MPs walked out after Hoyle had failed to appear to explain his decision. Uh, this is Labour MP Chris Bryant trying to defend the procedural change when that happened. There are perfectly legitimate views on different sides as to the propriety of today's proceedings. However, I would just say gently to some honourable members opposite who have said that, that you cannot possibly have an opposition day motion being amended by another opposition party, that some of the members who are shouting the loudest, 
Now, Hoyle did eventually turn up in the Commons, and this is the explanation he gave on Wednesday for his decision. I wish to respond to the point raised by the Leader of the House. Today's debate was exceptional in its intensity with which all parties wished to secure a vote on their own propositions. It took the decisions which were intended to allow the House the widest range of propositions... Just, right? Widest range of propositions on which to express a view. I wanted to do the best, and it was my wish... Just, just sorry. It was my wish to do the best by every member of this house. I take, I take very seriously... I, no, no. The danger is that that's why I wanted everybody to be able to express. Because I am very, very concerned about the security of all members. Let me just take this through. I was very concerned. I am still concerned. And that's why the meetings I've had today is about the security of members their families and the people that are involved. And I've got to say, I regret how it's ended up. It was not my intention. Probably well, wouldn't be my intention too if I started the day with a one SNP motion and two amendments and ended the day with one Labour amendment, which did end up passing. Uh, now, Hoyle's reasoning there that he broke, why he broke with parliamentary procedure was to protect the security of members of parliament. Question is, why would this affect a vote on a ceasefire in Gaza? Well, there is a burgeoning narrative that protesters and the public who are lobbying their MPs to support a ceasefire in Gaza are part of a wider threat to MP safety. And we will get into further analysis on this later in the show. But at the time, other parliamentarians thought Hoyle's decision was for another reason. Pressure from the Labour Party. Here's what both Penny Mordaunt and Stephen Flynn said during Wednesday's debate. I fear that this most grave uh, matter that we are discussing today and this afternoon has become a political row within the Labour Party and that, regrettably, Mr Speaker has inserted himself into that row with today's decision and undermined the confidence of this House in being able to rely on its long-established standing orders to govern its debates. Long-established conventions that should not be impaired by the current view of a weak leader of the opposition and a divided party. Mr Speaker, whilst I acknowledge your apology, the reality is that you were warned by the clerks of the House, that your decision could lead to the SNP not having a vote on our very own Opposition Day. As a result, we have seen the SNP Opposition Day turn into a Labour Party Opposition Day. I'm afraid that that is treating myself and my colleagues in the Scottish National Party with complete and utter contempt. And I will take significant convincing that your position is not now intolerable. 
Now, where would these MPs get the idea that Lindsay Hoyle may have acted in a partisan manner to protect Labour? Well, from a specific report that Labour leaned upon Hoyle to get him to put their amendment first. Now, that's one report. Here's what we know for sure. Labour leader Keir Starmer definitely met with Lindsay Hoyle on Wednesday, and The Guardian reports that the two of them discussed security of MPs because of, quote, threats Labour MPs had received after being whipped to abstain on a similar SNP ceasefire motion in November. But another journalist says that Hoyle was also under direct pressure from Labour to put forward their amendment, not because of MP security, but because of job security. Keir Starmer's job security, because it was instead to head off what could have been a difficult rebellion for Starmer if Labour MPs voted for the SNP motion. This is what BBC Newsnight political editor Nicholas Watt tweeted on Wednesday afternoon. Senior Labour figures tell me, at Common Speaker, aka Lindsay Hoyle, was left in no doubt that Labour would bring him down after the general election unless he called Labour's Gaza amendment. The message was, you will need our votes to be re-elected as Speaker after election with strong indications that this would not be forthcoming if he failed to call the Labour amendment. Hoyle has denied this, but what stuck by his story saying senior Labour sources had briefed him on the messages. So far, no other journalist has come out saying they've heard this too yet. Today, Keir Starmer has also stridently denied this report and stuck to the official line. Of course, there were discussions with the speaker, but many, you know, all party leaders speak to the, uh, 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 speak to the speaker. Um, but uh, there was absolutely no threat to the speaker uh, uh, in the course of that. What he wanted to do was to ensure that Parliament had the broadest possible debate on an issue which is really very, very important. Can you categorically say then that no Labour MP warned Lindsay Hoyle that he could lose Labour's support to continue as speaker after the election if he didn't select that amendment? I was very concerned that the debate yesterday should be elevated. It's a very important issue. That is probably the most important issue globally at the moment, the conflict in Gaza, and how we bring an end to the terrible situation. The specific so so I wanted that amendment. Heard. Of course I had conversations with the Speaker. All political leaders had conversations what with the speaker. Did you put on the speaker. I simply urged the Speaker to ensure that the debate could be as broad as possible and that MPs could vote for the proposition that they believed in. We're talking here about whether there was one amendment or two amendments on the uh, before Parliament. The real issue, the real issue uh, is to have that proper debate. Um, and that didn't happen. Starman noticeably refused to answer the question there, so he was asked it again. Can you say that you and your Labour MPs categorically didn't put that pressure on the Speaker, didn't threaten to withdraw your support for him after the election? Can you just say that yes or no? I can categorically tell you that I did not threaten the Speaker in any way whatsoever. I simply urged him to ensure that we have the broadest possible debate. And your MPs? Broadest possible debate um, so that actually the most important thing, which is what do we do about the awful situation in Gaza, could be properly discussed by MPs with a number of options in front of them. That's the right thing to do. I think this is actually a very interesting interview because obviously we've only got that one report by Nicholas Watts. Starmer could be in quite a, I wouldn't say powerful position, but he could easily deny entirely that report by Nicholas Watts. And instead, what happens there is he categorically denies that he 
threaten Lindsay Hoyle. He doesn't answer the question about whips or any other Labour figures or MPs when it's put to him. And as a former top lawyer, these details matter. Of course, the debacle has handed the Tories a huge, meaty bone. This was Penny Morden attacking Labour in the Commons today. Two significant things happened yesterday, and I'm not sure all honourable members have clocked. Firstly, it fell to the government benches to defend the rights of a minority party in this House. If the honourable lady opposite cannot bring herself to reflect on the appalling consequences of her party's actions yesterday, if she cannot rise above the narrow and immediate needs of her weak and fickle leader to fulfil her duties to this House as its shadow leader, perhaps she might like to reflect on the damage her party has done to the office of the Speaker. I would never have done to him what the Labour Party have done to him. Secondly, we have seen into the heart of Labour's leadership. Nothing is more important than the interests of the Labour Party. The Labour Party before principle. The Labour Party before individual rights. The Labour Party before the reputation and honour of the decent man that sits in Speaker's chair. Of course, this iteration of the Tory party has got absolutely no business casting themselves as defenders of democracy, but it shows how badly Labour have come off here. And if they really were engaged in the political games they have been accused of, how much they've blown those machinicians. You know, it's the first attempt really getting in these dark arts and they've fluffed it. And meanwhile, the SNP are still calling for Lindsay Hoyle to go. Here's David Linden, the SNP's social justice spokesperson. Every SNP MP will be backing the motion of no confidence. I think the last that I saw suggested that something like 65 MPs, so not just the SNP, indeed, uh, other MPs uh, have decided that Lindsay Hoyle does not command the confidence of the House of Commons. The SNP only gets the opportunity to have an opposition day three times a year. Um, we have uh, made a lot of running on the issue as a warning to see that immediate ceasefire and reference what we believe is the collective punishment of Palestinians. Uh, unfortunately, as a result, a direct result of the actions taken by Sir Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker of the House of Commons, very much in cahoots with Sir Keir Starmer of the Labour Party, the SNP was robbed of its opposition date. It did not get a fair kick at the ball. And that was done as a result of the Speaker either being intimidated by the Labour Party or working with them hand in glove. I have tonight seen a pull clip of Sir Keir Starmer uh, being asked if he or any of his MPs, i.e. his whips team, uh, tried to put undue pressure on the Speaker of the House of Commons. It was blatantly clear yesterday, as the Speaker kept leaving the chair to enter the reasons room, uh, that he was having private meetings uh, with Labour MPs. Now, Keir Starmer has said he didn't put any pressure uh, on uh, the Speaker, but he has dodged the question as to whether his MPs have. What I want to see now is the, the clerk of the House of Commons uh, come out and produce minutes of that meeting, uh, where clerks present at it, um, and to answer whether or not Labour MPs intimidated Sir Lindsay Hoyle uh, to select an amendment against the advice of the clerk 
that would seek to avoid Keir Starmer having to experience the rebellion in the House of Commons on the most grave issue of the situation in Gaza. I deeply regret the fact that today the, the news in the UK is about people dancing on the head of a pin of what happened procedurally in the UK Parliament. Um, the reality is 30,000 people, mainly women and children, have lost their life as a result of the Israeli assault on Gaza and the death and destruction that that has wreaked. Um, now, there's no doubt that there are strong feelings in the House of Commons, um, but the, the reason that there was so much anger yesterday and the reason why MPs, I think, have lost confidence in the Speaker of the House is because he lost control of the House as a result of his own actions. And it's for that reason that his position is no longer tenable. Now, that no-confidence motion in Lindsay Hoyle that David Linden mentioned there is now reportedly at 67 MPs. I think it'd be 175 in order for it to be brought to the House. Now, this may all seem like a silly commons for all, but it's, it's not. If the non-partisan speaker was pressured into rigging a vote so it would favour his previous party and avoid a very difficult political moment for that party's leader, that's a story on its own, let alone if those machinations caused another political party to be robbed of their rightful democratic opportunity to get issues on the Commons agenda. Think about it this way. If Boris Johnson or Rishi Sunak were accused of putting pressure on someone to change parliamentary procedure in their favour, well, we'd probably be seeing a standards committee investigation. Labour would certainly be going to town. And even if Lindsay Hoyle was acting solely because of his fears of MP security, why now? Did parliamentary procedure on amendments change when the tragic deaths of Joe Cox or David Amnes would happened? And why does a ceasefire on a Gaza amendment suddenly pose such a particular threat to MP safety. Ash, is Hoyle's position untenable, even if he did have security concerns? We're going to talk about these so-called security concerns later in the show, so I'm not going to get into that just now. What I want to talk about is the position of the speaker. So just to remind the audience what the position of the speaker is supposed to be about, even though they are selected from MPs who are members of parties. The moment they take the Speaker's chair, they're supposed to be scrupulously impartial on party lines and to represent the interests of the House of Commons as a whole. Very famously, uh, the Speaker of the House of Commons during the reign of Charles I said, I have neither eyes to see nor ears to hear, except as this House is pleased to direct me. It's this idea that they are a vehicle for the will of the House as a whole. So if you have political operators effectively sitting on the Speaker's head to try and get preferential treatment in the selection of the amendments, that fatally undermines the credibility of the Speaker. Now, Moya, you said earlier that this was, you know, Keir Starmer's Labour Party you know, their first go at some of these darker arts and machinations and it's blown up in their face. I wonder if that was a calculated risk on their part because, sure, they're taking some heat. There are these rumours swirling about was pressure applied to Sir Lindsay Hoyle by Labour Party whips. But when you look at whose job is at risk, 
It's not Keir Starmer's, it's Sir Lindsay Hoyle's. Because what's being threatened by the Conservative Party is that in departure from parliamentary convention, they may stand a candidate, as in a Tory MP, as a candidate for Speaker against Lindsay Hoyle, which is against the convention, which, you know, usually is that a Speaker steps down. Um that, I think, will make Lindsay Hoyle's position very, very difficult. It's, you know, unheard of in modern times for there to be 66 sitting MPs who have declared that they have no confidence in the Speaker. It's difficult to see how he gets through that without a broader vote in the House of Commons. And I think that you can see in his face an intense regret, less so in terms of narrowing the proper scope of debate, in the House of Commons yesterday over the two different amendments regarding a ceasefire. And I think more perhaps if he did act in order to preserve his job, this may have done the exact opposite. The last thing that I want to say is that once more, and I know people can get very annoyed at me when I say this, this does show that perhaps Keir Starmer is taking more cues from Boris Johnson's style of leadership than he or his supporters would care to admit. Because if, at Keir Starmer's direction, Labour whips did pressure Sir Lindsay Hoyle to select their amendment, which would come at the expense of the SNP's motion and would put the threats of a Labour rebellion to bed, if that indeed happened, you'd sort of, I think, compare that to Boris Johnson's prorogation of Parliament, removing the whip from 21 MPs, a willingness on Boris Johnson's part to do what was best for his faction of the party by pushing parliamentary conventions to their very breaking point. Because, of course, a lot of this is mere convention. This isn't law. And even where certain acts are found to have been unlawful retrospectively, such as the prorogation of parliament, nothing's going to happen because of it. So I think there has been a level of impunity that was demonstrated by Boris Johnson, which has perhaps been a little bit inspiring to Sir Keir Starmer. It's quite interesting uh, telling Eden that the I think it was the last speaker who resigned was 2009, maybe Michael Martin, uh, over, an ex- over the expenses scandal. And it only took 22 uh, signatures on a no confidence motion uh, for him to resign. The, the motion wasn't put forward because he'd already gone and I think it would have been the first motion since the 17th century. 17th century? Yeah, 17th century. Uh, if he had gone so uh, via a motion but yeah it took 22 signatures and now we've got 67 against Lindsay Hoyle and he still hasn't gone it just goes to show the I don't want to say the uh, decline but yeah the decline of uh, standards and ethics within parliament let's go on to our next story there were 1.5 million Palestinians sheltering in Rafa a city that is built for 250,000. Despite being driven there for safety by Israel's military operation in the rest of the Gaza Strip, the IDF keeps bombing them anyway. Overnight, the Al-Farouk Mosque was flattened by an Israeli airstrike. Several buildings surrounding the mosque were also damaged, with entire residential blocks levelled. In another attack on Rafah, this family lost three people, killed when a missile hit their house. One of those who survived said, quote, In 2014, they took three of my siblings, and in the 2024 war, 
They took the people I love. They took a piece of my heart, a piece of my heart. I hope my voice reaches everyone, asking them to pray for mercy for my family. With two-thirds of Gazans trapped in Rafa, 800,000 are still living in the rest of the Strip. Many of them are sheltering in UNRWA buildings, such as schools, offices, and medical centres repurposed to house refugees. In the far north of the territory, the Jabalia refugee camp has come under attack again, with IDF bombs hitting a marketplace and an UNRWA facility. The UNRWA building was the only known location left in Jabalia for distributing food assistance to the camp. Last month, Israel accused UNRWA of complicity in the 7th of October attacks, an accusation that was made public on the very same day the ICJ ruled it plausible that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. But Israeli attacks on UNRWA facilities long predate that verdict. 300 attacks on its infrastructure since the start of Israel's offensive, decimating the agency's ability to distribute food, water and medicine to the civilian population of Gaza. That collapse in infrastructure is now leading to irreversible catastrophe. The Director General of the World Health Organization has said this. On a broader level, Gaza has become a death zone. Much of the territory has been destroyed. More than 29,000 people are dead. Many more are missing, presumed dead, and many, many more are injured. Severe malnutrition has shot up dramatically since the war started, from under 1% to more than 15% in some areas, putting more lives at risk. This figure will rise the longer the war goes on and supplies are interrupted. Gaza has become a death zone, chilling words from the head of the World Health Organization, and they come with the strongest justification. Experts at Johns Hopkins University in the US and the University of London have published a report detailing the medium-term fate of Palestinians in Gaza. They model three scenarios, a ceasefire, a continuation of the conflict, and an escalation. This is what they conclude. Over the next six months, we project that, in the absence of epidemics, six and a half thousand excess deaths would occur under the ceasefire scenario, climbing to 58,000 under the status quo scenario and 74,000 under the escalation scenario. Over the same period, and with the occurrence of epidemics, our projections rise to 11,000, 66,000 and 85,000 respectively. The difference in those figures shows just how urgently a ceasefire is needed, with 10 times more deaths projected if the war continues even at its current pace without epidemics. And the figure, even with a ceasefire, at least 6,500 excess deaths, gives you a sense of the extent of the damage Israel has inflicted on Gaza. As the authors point out, thousands of excess deaths would occur because of the time it would take to restore basic sanitation, healthcare, and shelter to the Strip. Israel has also been thinking about a ceasefire, and specifically how it would manage Gaza when it stops bombing it. Reuters reports that Israel is proposing forming Palestinian-run humanitarian pockets in areas of Gaza to test plans for post-war administration in the enclave. But there's a catch. According to the Israeli official who spoke to Reuters, Israel is only prepared to give control to Palestinians with no connections to Hamas or the Palestinian authorities. And given that Israel thinks everyone in Gaza is Hamas, might take them a while to find anyone. That is, if there's anyone left alive in the first place. The article reports this. 
The Israeli officials said the planned, quote, humanitarian pockets would be in districts of the Gaza Strip from which Hamas has been expelled, but that their ultimate success would hinge on Israel achieving its goal of destroying the Islamist faction across the tiny coastal territory that it has been governing. The plan, the official added, quote, may be achieved once Hamas is destroyed and doesn't pose a threat to Israel or to Gazans. Geographically distant, humanitarian pockets under the control of Israeli-selected Palestinian leaders. Sounds kind of familiar. In fact, they sound a lot like the Bantu stands forced on black South Africans in apartheid South Africa. Hamas has said the plan would be tantamount to reoccupying Gaza. Outside of Gaza, there's been an attack in the occupied West Bank. A 26-year-old Israeli man was killed and a further eight people were injured after three Palestinian gunmen opened fire on cars moving slowly in a traffic jam. The attack happened near a checkpoint entering occupied East Jerusalem. Two of the attackers were killed by, quote, security forces and armed civilians, and a third was reportedly detained. Speaking at the scene, far-right Minister of National Security Itamar Ben-Gavir said this. Our right to life overrides the Palestinians' freedom of movement. I will fight for barriers around the villages that will limit the freedom of movement of the residents of the Palestinian Authority. Have they learned absolutely nothing? The answer is yes. In a statement, Hamas called the attack, quote, a natural response to the Israeli occupation's massacres and crimes in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. Now, you might not think that the description of the shooting in the occupied West Bank is legitimate or justified, but whether justified or not, we know one thing for sure. Until Israel stops its assault on Palestinians in Gaza, stops the occupation of the Palestinian territories, stops blocking the right of Palestinians to self-determination and the right to return, attacks on its security will only continue. Let's go to our next story. Labour under pressure over the allegations that they blackmailed the House of Commons Speaker to, quote, hijack the Gaza ceasefire votes during an SNP opposition day. Notably, Labour hasn't yet used any of its own opposition days to table a motion on, ce on a ceasefire in Israel's war on Gaza. And on BBC Newsnight, Victoria Derbyshire asked Shadow Defence Secretary John Healy, why? Surely the reason why we're actually here tonight in this position is to do with the central problem of Sakir Starmer's leadership. He hides. He could have tabled his own opposition day motion on a ceasefire. Why did it take the SNP doing it for you to get your act together with your own amendment? Well, Keir Starmer and Labour now have been arguing for a ceasefire for weeks now. We've been arguing for so immediate why, why release. So why have you waited weeks then? I'm going to answer your question. What, what has happened in recent days is that the threatened ground offensive by the Israelis uh, against Rafa have become so serious, we've taken a stance to say that cannot happen. What's happened is that there's been a shift among important allies like New Zealand, Australia, Canada and others, demanding as we have now an immediate humanitarian ceasefire and one that can build into a long-term peace process. So that was the argument we were making today. An end to the fighting now, a ceasefire respected on both sides and one that lasts. And today was an opportunity to debate that, to bring the House together. And I think as MPs, 
we lost sight of why we're here. We allowed ourselves to descend into the chaos of a rowabout procedure with the government boycotting their own vote and the SNP walking out on the debate based on their own motion. Now, Healy mentions a number of allies there, but doesn't list the US. And it's pretty clear to everyone else that Labour and the Tories are just aligning themselves with President Joe Biden's latest position when it comes to a threatened Israeli ground offences in Rafah. And even if the Rafah offences is stopped, Netanyahu has been clear for months in both words and actions that his aim is, quote, complete victory over Hamas, a goal that won't be achieved, possibly ever, but without even greater destruction than we've already seen, if you can imagine it. Now, Derbyshire put that point to Healy. Perhaps you, Labour, have lost sight of the fact that nearly 30,000 people have been killed in Gaza. What were you waiting for? I am so concerned and aware of the agonies of the Palestinian people. The death toll is 30,000 and mounting, as you say. So what hospitals, are you waiting for? Hospitals have been smashed. Families are starving. Yet more children are being killed. Exactly. And with the, at this point, with the threatened ground offensive against Rafa, which cannot happen, now is the moment to take a stronger position, to say Hamas must release all the hostages, the Israelis cannot proceed with their offensive against Rafa, and the British government should come alongside allies to demand and call for and work for, as we have been doing, an immediate humanitarian ceasefire that can be respected on all sides and become the process that we need, a political process, a diplomatic process, aimed at securing a long-term peace and security for Israel and for the Palestinian people. What's really interesting is the threat of the Rafa offensive has seemed to serve an important political function for both Netanyahu and politicians like Keir Starmer. And these are, these are separate functions. For Netanyahu, it's become a bargaining chip, both against Hamas and Western leaders who are trying to force a change in military strategy, not because of the death toll, they haven't moved on that, but because now... Uh, the Palestinian population has been pushed to the very edge of the Gaza Strip. Um, But this also gives politicians in the West who are wary of calling for peace something smaller to focus on, a smaller peace, a way of displaying their pseudo-moral colours while having done nothing at all to stop the destruction of 30,000 people in Gaza over the last four months and the displacement of 1.5 million others. There's no clearer display of playing politics with the lives of civilians than this. And playing politics was at the heart of Victoria Derbyshire's next question. At around three o'clock this afternoon, our political editor reported that senior Labour figures told him that the Speaker would need Labour votes to be re-elected as Speaker after the election with strong indications this would not be forthcoming if the Speaker failed to call your Labour amendment. And Nick interpreted that, Nick Watt interpreted that, to mean that it would be the end of Sir Lindsay Hoyle as the Speaker in the next Parliament. What do you say to that? Well, I've no, no idea about Nick Watt's sources. I've no idea about the interpretation he might place on those. But in a sense, you've stated the what happens. The Speaker is elected by all members of the House of Commons. He is there to protect the interests of all MPs. And part of that, and what he was trying to do, which backfired and he apologised for this, but he was trying to ensure the widest possible debate. He is not there to do the government's bidding. Are you saying 
that it is feasible that Sir Keir Starmer or a Labour MP or a Labour staffer might have said something to Sir Lindsay Hoyle that put a question mark over Labour support for him as Speaker in the next Parliament. If someone has said something of that nature to the Speaker, that would be unacceptable, wouldn't it? Well, trying to, trying to pressure the House of Commons Speaker is a hiding, a hiding to nothing, I have to tell you. But the Speaker this afternoon made decisions about how to conduct the debate within rules that are outdated, heavily stacked in favour of the government, that do require a view, as he said. You, I'm, and I'm he really was sorry doing to interrupt it. you. I'm going to pause you there because it feels like you're evading the question. If someone had said something of that nature to the Speaker about possible support for him in the next Parliament, if he did or didn't call the Labour amendment, that would be unacceptable, wouldn't it? Because that would be blackmail, surely. There were three hypotheticals in your question. If all three were true, that would have been unacceptable. My point is, this afternoon, the Speaker set the terms of the debate because he wanted the widest possible debate. He was conscious this matters to Parliament. It matters beyond Parliament in our communities. And it matters what Britain has to say about the process of peace and how to end the fighting in Gaza. Ash, what did you make of Healy's responses there? What should we make of Labour after all of this? <laughs> I mean, the truth behind all of this arcane parliamentary procedure is very, very simple. The difference between the SNP's motion and Labour's amendment was that the SNP's motion condemned the collective punishment of Gaza. Now, why is that a problem for Labour? Well, the unfortunate fact is, is that until fairly recently, the Labour leadership supported the collective punishment of the people of Gaza. When asked by Nick Ferrari whether Israel had the right to cut off food, electricity and water to Gaza wholesale, what Keir Starmer said was, I believe Israel does have that right. Now, since then, the Labour Party have attempted to walk back that statement and say, oh no, he wasn't talking about cutting off critical supplies to Gaza. He was talking about the sort of broader notion of Israel's right to self-defense. That is, quite frankly, a load of horseshit because later that same night, Emily Thornbury went on Newsnight. She was asked by Victoria Derbyshire specifically about the comments made by Keir Starmer, specifically about cutting off water, food and electricity. And she said, I believe that Israel has an absolute right to self-defense. That's the position of the Labour Party. When Victoria Derbyshire said, that doesn't answer my question, Emily Thornbury said, that is an answer to your question. So, Quite obviously, the position of the Labour Party was that they supported the collective punishment of the people of Gaza. And had there been a sizable rebellion of Labour MPs and they voted for the SNP motion, or if indeed Labour didn't table an amendment of their own at all and just put their support behind the SNP motion, they would have been in deep shit because Keir Starmer's own words would come under intense and renewed scrutiny. So this whole thing is about playing politics. Was it the case that the SNP's motion was designed to exploit divisions in Labour? I mean, probably. This is parliamentary democracy that we're talking about after all. But 
the fact that it got booted out of the parliamentary arena and the Speaker of the House's credibility is now in tatters. That was all about protecting the political ambitions of Keir Starmer. That's all there was to it. I read both motions and the Labour motion wasn't as bad as it could have been. Um, and the S&P motion was, you know, it was actually very simple. Um, the Labour motion did contain some things that I probably would have been like, this should be in the S&P motion. But the, the, the fact the S&P motion didn't even get put forward and what was very key and what was missing from the Labour motion the S&P motion had was the S&P motion unequivocally just called for an immediate ceasefire. The Labour motion called for a humanitarian ceasefire leading to a permanent ceasefire. Uh, and also that bit about collective punishment that is such a sticking point for Labour thanks to earlier comments by Keir Starmer and senior Labour frontbench MPs. Let's go on to our next and final story. Now, on Wednesday, as we've covered, MPs were prepared to vote on what was supposed to be an SNP motion on a ceasefire in Israel's war on Gaza. And as we know, that vote did not turn out as expected. But in the run-up to that vote, various groups across Britain who had been campaigning for a ceasefire mobilised in order to lobby their MPs. And some of this lobbying was done via email, via letters, and some of it was done in person. It's called a protest. However, these protests have sparked an escalation in what appears to be, at least to me, a new strain of a perpetually rumbling Islamophobic moral panic. And here's Talk TV right-wing rent-a-gob Julia Hartley Brewer on pro-Palestine demonstrators. A highly political, highly violent ideology called Islamism is sweeping our nation. No, this is not Islamophobia. This is real. You know how this is real? Because we actually see the victims of that. Not just in Mike Freer, the justice minister, who said he's not standing for parliament again because of the threats to him and his family from Islamist ideologists. Uh, we see it in Sir David Amos, an MP brutally murdered because of Islamist ideology. We see that in Stephen Timms, a Labour MP, thankfully he survived a stabbing in his own constituency. Yes, we all focus on Joe Cox, talk about her all the time. Another tragic death at the hands of a far-right extremist. But actually, the far-right extremist violence is by far the minority. Crazy way to say that, and it's simply not true. Uh, the biggest threat to the UK from extremism is the far right, as Britain's top counterterrorism officers said in 2019. Now, while Julia Hartley-Brew is hardly the most reliable source of temperature checking, her extreme bigotry when it comes to pro-Palestine protesters is indicative of a sentiment that's cutting through to liberal circles too. Here's Hartley-Brew referencing events in Parliament on Wednesday. No one should be surprised by what happened in the House of Commons last night. We have been brushing this issue under the carpet for years. Another terror attack, another killing of an MP. Oh, don't worry, let's light a candle. Let's all sing, let's look, don't look back in anger and sing Kumbaya and everything will be okay. The one thing we must not do is face up to the threat that we have imported to our country and no. This isn't Islamophobia. This isn't talking about the four million Muslims who live peaceably in this country, who want to just make a life for themselves, for them, ch their children, go to work and live lives the same as everyone else of any other religion or none. We are talking, though, about a sizable minority, a far too large minority. You can't just be Islamophobic and say this isn't Islamophobia because it is Islamophobia. And this is part of a wider narrative which paints pro-Palestine protesters and supporters of that movement as two things. One, 
as particularly aggressive and abusive towards parliamentarians or anyone who might question, you know, pro-Palestine support, and two, explicitly and exclusively Muslim. Common Speaker Lindsay Hoyle's excuse for his procedural bypass on the SNP ceasefire vote on Wednesday was that his fears for the safety of MPs were so great he just had to change the rules. I never, ever want to go through a situation where I pick up a phone to find a friend of whatever side has been murdered by terrorists. I also don't want another attack on this house. I was in the chair on that day. I have seen, I have witnessed. I won't share the details, but the details of the things that have been brought to me are absolutely frightening on all members of this house, on all sides. I have a duty of care, and I say that. And if my mistake is looking after members, I am guilty. I am guilty because I have a duty of care that I will carry out to protect people. It is the protection that led me to make a wrong decision. But what I do not apologise is the risk that's being put on all members at the moment. I had serious meetings yesterday with the police on the issues and threats to politicians, threats heading to an election. And I do not want anything to happen again. So yes, I will apologise. I always will when I make a mistake. I did. I offer an SO24. That is within my gift and power. But I will also say I will do whatever it is to protect anybody in this chamber or anybody who works in this house. Now what Hoyle does there is paint Palestine protesters as a unique threat because he's changing procedure for the first time in 25 years. And those 25 years have included, you know, a real escalation in digital abuse and threats against black and Asian, particularly female MPs. It's included two deaths at the hands of extremists of MPs. But it's this moment this moment that Hoyle is saying that the threat from pro-Palestine protesters is so great, we have to change parliamentary procedure. This is a unique threat. And it's not just Hoyle doing this. This was Labour MSP Paul Sweeney yesterday. The Glasgow constituency office of Labour MSPs was stormed by protesters this afternoon, terrifying and threatening our staff, staff who are working to help Glasgow constituents thanks to At Police Scotland for ensuring their safety. The speaker is right to try and calm this down. Sounds absolutely terrifying, right? Except this was the video published by the Scotsman, the paper in Scotland, of the storming of those Labour officers. I'm John, I'm from Gaza Genocide Emergency Committee. Um, we're outside the Labour Party offices here in Wilson Street in Glasgow. And here we're here to request that uh, Labour representatives make a substantive statement, not just on the ceasefire, which they've been prevaricating about, but they actually make a take a position on the genocide itself. We went into the offices very peacefully, obviously, and we requested to speak to some of the staff. Uh, no one was there, alas, and we're not sure where they are. 
15 people turned up, at least that was according to a staff photographer who worked for the Scotsman, and no Labour staff were even there. Stormed. Right, okay. The police disputed Sweeney's account, and here's what The National reported today. Police Scotland has now confirmed it was not aware of anyone storming in or threatening Labour staff. Police Scotland also said it was made aware of a, quote, peaceful protest that officers attended with no issues because the protesters involved left of their own accord. Back in London, the Palestine Solidarity Campaign also says they're going to lodge a complaint about their treatment because a large group of people gathered to lobby MPs in person in Westminster. They were mobilised, like you do when you're in a campaign. However, when demonstrators arrived, they were told a, quote, special procedure had been employed, which specified that pro-Palestine protesters were limited to only allow 50 people maximum in Parliament, because normally you can go in and you can lobby people in Westminster Hall, but that wasn't allowed. And the Palestine Solidarity Campaign says other groups have been allowed to bring in as many people as they want into Parliament. Labour MP John McDonnell backs up their complaint. He says this, I raised this in Parliament. This is no way to treat constituents simply coming to meet their MPs. Large lobbies take place frequently, and are not treated like this. Now, the portrayal of peaceful pro-Palestine protests as volatile and angry has been in process for a while. Remember, hate marches was how former Home Secretary Suella Braverman and Prime Minister Rishi Sunak framed the peace marches on Remembrance Sunday 2023. And if we want to get into the stats, Open Democracy reported that Palestine peace marches from October to December 2023 actually had a total arrest rate lower than Glastonbury Festival. So that's three months versus three days. But never mind that. Just today, for example, Sir William Shawcross, who was appointed by Boris Johnson to review the controversial Prevent Counterterrorism strategy last year, was issuing coded warnings about, quote, Hamas sympathisers. So Shawcross had told BBC reporters that the prevent strategy isn't focused on, quote, Islamist concerns. He said this. There are unfortunately quite a lot of Hamas sympathisers and some operatives in this country. Prevent and the police should have been working much harder against those Hamas people in this country. The public are more at risk because of the events of 7th of October and subsequently, and many more, many people in this country are much more frightened than they have ever been before. Now, this is a guy who, when he was in charge of that review, only turned up to about six of the key meetings. And his comments were, you're not focusing enough on Islamists, you're focusing too much on the far right, which even the Home Office was like, don't know about that, mate. But never mind that the popular pro-Palestine movement is composed of a huge range of groups, nor that support for a ceasefire, and talking about just a ceasefire here, is a majority public opinion in Britain. Because now it's not just the right who are positioning pro-Palestine protesters as a threat to democracy rather than an expression of it. It's also the centrists. And that's why I want to know, Ash, do you think we are seeing a fresh expression of Islamophobic moral panic channeled by those MP safety concerns? Yes. Do you want me to say yes but longer? Because I can also say yes I'd love a yes but longer. I would love a yes but longer. (laughs) but definitely, yes. Um, and I think that there's two sides to this equation. One is, I think, the vein of anti-democratic 
ideology that runs through the political media class. And the other is, as you just mentioned, a particularly kind a particular kind of, of Islamic mistrust and demonization of British Muslim citizens. So to start with that anti-democratic vein, I think you see it very well when peaceful protesters who have not stormed into an MP's office a tour was held open for them and they entered and they held some placards. That being described in the most um, emotive and hyperbolic ways, politicians can only talk like that because journalists themselves feel like they're under threat from the public as well. Now, I'm not talking about abuse, harassment, intimidation, threats, or violence. Of course, all of those things are completely wrong. And I say that as a journalist who has faced harassment, abuse, threats, and violence from people. Some of those behaviors I've even experienced from my fellow journalists. So I'm not trying to cast criminal harmful behavior is somehow morally justified. I'm not. But I'm looking at how democratic participation, like peaceful protest, is looked upon by journalists and by politicians as nothing less than attempted murder. There was an edition of Playbook, to which, for my sins, I'm a subscriber, where the writer of that morning's playbook had mentioned that they'd been in central London uh, when they'd been out to buy Lego for their kid and said, oh, scary stuff. Well, what, what was scary about it? What was it that you saw that made you feel that you were at risk? The fact that you're, men- you're not mentioning anything specific makes me feel that yeah, you find it scary, but there's not actually anything going on. Otherwise, you would have written about it. You just find something inherently threatening about the idea of peaceful protest. Similarly, MPs who are, you know, saying, oh, my office has been stormed or I didn't want to go outside because people were chanting. That's kind of a you problem. I'm sorry. You have to be able to distinguish between threats, violence, harassment, and legitimate, lawful, peaceful, democratic participation. And just to give you an example of some coverage, which I've just read from Sky News, which was trying to look at this climate of fear that MPs are having to uh, live with, the staffer for one Labour MP described having to act like a bodyguard for an MP and said, you know, we've started having to report tweets that call this MP a fascist and say that they've got blood on their hands. Now, look, You might say accusing someone of having blood on their hands is discourteous, it's heated, it's certainly emotive, but it is not a term of abuse. Come on, like it's just not. And I think that what's happening at the moment is that both journalists and politicians have come under an awful lot of criticism for their responses to the, you know, the genocidal acts taking place in Gaza. And they've interpreted that criticism as abuse, which is why I think you've got such histrionics going on in the media. Now, I'm not talking about actual abuse, as I said, I'm talking about what is perfectly legitimate free expression being wrongly cast as abuse. And then you've got the Islam, the Islamophobic element of it. Um, there has been, I think, in this country, a willingness to cast... British Muslims who are exercising their democratic rights to put them under the lens of suspicion. So when you had 
high voter turnout in Tower Hamlets or in Peterborough, you had right-wing newspapers completely falsely and without any evidence alleging that there'd been mass electoral fraud committed by Muslims. Now, there wasn't any evidence of that happening. They just decided that because Muslims turned out to vote for their preferred candidate, that there was some kind of wrongdoing. So similarly, when you see a, you know, pretty, you know, high representation of Muslims as part of the pro-Palestine movement that gets cast as Islamism, that gets cast as extremism, that gets cast as, you know, a kind of looming sectarian conflict between British Jewish people who are always presented as being, you know, kind of inherently threatened by Muslims and British Muslims. And it is just Islamophobia, plain and simple. You know, it's the way in which Julia Hartley Brewer earlier in the segment was, you know, speaking of this Islamist threat that had been imported while there was B-roll, you know, footage being uh, screened of a peaceful pro-Palestine protest. Now, that's a deliberate effort to conflate Islamism and violent extremism with a peaceful and legitimate protest. And it can only be done because people in the media don't think that Islamophobia is much of a problem. In fact, they hold many Islamic views themselves. And because it's chiming with a much longer-running moral panic about the presence of British Muslims in this country. I think it's really interesting what you highlighted there, Ash, because uh, it all comes down, not all, but part of it, a significant part of what you said comes down to that uh, adage, conflict is not abuse. And Sarah Schulman, the author of the book, Conflict is Not Abuse, where she discusses how perceived victimhood can be used in terms to uh, perpetuate harm against others when people are not aware of the power they have or in denial about the power they have. And they see all conflict as abuse. Uh, she actually explicitly and repeatedly uses Israel and Palestine as an example of powerful groups where victimhood is becomes a way to perpetuate harm. But also on an individual level, um, there's you know this fear of conflict where all conflict is harm and any sort of collision is harm. And I think that's also a register we're really seeing take root in you know, modern day politics, British politics. And it's, it's fascinating how that has seeped in. Um, I just want to say a huge thank you for joining me tonight to talk through these stories, Ash. Um, thank you for having me. And thank you to the audience. And I'm thanking you prematurely for listening to our new podcast, <laughs> If I Speak. Um, don't make me regret thanking you for it. Make me very happy. Listen to the podcast. Yeah, listen, also, if you want to hear our juicy gossip and our oversharing, that's where we get a little bit more informal. Uh, come back tomorrow night for another live stream from 6pm. But for now, you have, as always, been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.